Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I have skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. Be careful who you sit next to this week while listening to this episode, because you might just get wrapped up in a murder plot. We're talking Hitchcock's no! 1951 thriller, Strangers on a Train, this week on Zach on Film. <laughs> this cat keeps telling me that he'll kill somebody for me if I kill the mouse for him. Doesn't seem like quite a quite a good deal. Although cats, well, you know, the they, only person I'm sitting by. They, they sit on your chest and suck your breath out in the middle of the night. Cats do not that? Not my yeah. cat. He's not allowed in my room. Oh, man. Got to watch out for those cats, Zach. Cats are weird. I never know what kind of crazy cats, cats are going to meet on a on a train. Yeah, I've been on a train never. Have you ever been on a train? Let me think. I've been <laughs> on a monorail before. Fun, yeah, yeah, I was going to say monorail. <laughs> been on the little <laughs> uh, steamboat train or the uh, steam trains there in uh, Ellis at the uh, historical society. Yeah. Do those count? I don't know. I've been on the little transit carts uh, at Denver International Airport. And there you go. At Texas. I count those Airport. as trains. Yeah, sure. I've I've been on the train at the Kansas Natural History Museum here. No one. No one's. Oh, I mean, me too. Me too. Uh, Rodrigo, no one's ever come up to you and just started talking wildly about uh, how they've figured out the perfect murder and they want to share it with you. Sure. Rob. Sure. I used to. I used to take the L in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I'd get I'd get worried if somebody started making sense. <laughs> if somebody if somebody if somebody was like, "Hey, I've got uh, I just I just flew in from uh, O'Hare and I'm on my way out to Evanston right now because I'm visiting my da- daughter at college." I'd be like, "Get away from me!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but if if somebody comes up and is like, "Say, I've got an idea for the perfect murder. You kill the person that I want to kill. I'll kill the person that you want to kill, and then we'll split the take." And I'm like, "Oh, what take?" <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> aliens built the pyramids. I'm like, "All right, now that's good." <laughs> and that's so, how we met Rob. I will say this yeah. is the uh, first time my oldest has ever watched um, Strangers on a Train. Oh, really? Yeah, he was like, I said, well, I've got to watch this movie today. You can watch it with me if you want. And he goes, well, what's it rate? He goes, what's it about? It's like about a person who kills another person. And he's always freaked out about blood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he goes, "Uh, what's it rated? And I said, PG. And I showed him the cover art and everything. And he's like, I could probably handle this movie. (laughs) And about five (laughs) minutes in, he got up and went and played with Legos. Uh, Uh, But he did make one interesting observation that I still chuckle about. He he looks at the he looks at guy uh, Haynes Farley Granger in the movie, uh, or yeah, and mm-hmm. says, "Wait a minute, so this guy's name is Guy?" I'm like, "Yeah, well, that's dumb." <laughs> and then he walked off and played Lego. <laughs> I'd also like to point out that I only appear in this episode due to an arrangement with Samuel L. Goldwyn. By the way, yeah, yeah. Do you? Uh, I think everybody's seen this multiple times except for Zach, right? I've never seen it before in my life. What? Man, there's so much to talk about in this movie. I have never seen Strangers on... Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I understand what you're saying. I just find it very shocking because... uh, Probably he's seen Rush Hour, though. (laughs) I've also seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and Throw Mama from the Train. Yeah, so uh, Throw Mama from the Train is not a satire... But it is a comic take on 
Strangers on a Train. Mm. And you've not seen that either, have you, Zach? No. Or did, or did you sit down and watch it like we told you to watch it after you watched Strangers on a Train? I did not, and I forgot you told me to do I that. I guarantee you your fiancé will like Throw Mama from the Train. I'll tell you what she does like that I believe now is inspired from this movie is the movie that or, came out yep. last year is Horrible Bosses. Yes. Yep, I horrible got bosses. about five minutes of this movie. I was like, oh, so that's what the idea came from. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And this actually is from a well, from, sure, a, yeah, sure. from a book. book, book. And then the uh, screenplay was written by uh, Raymond Chandler. Uh, Ooh, the Maltese yeah. Falcon guy. Yeah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> which is a big surprise. That is kind of a big surprise. This doesn't feel like his shtick. Yeah, you know, it is very noir. It is very, um, you um, know, solve the murder kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of daylight for a noir and. I, you know, oh, there, we'll, there's we're nobody talk in a, about that in the second half of this film. There's nobody in like a dirty raincoat. It's all like guys in tuxedos and stuff. It just and granted, I mean, this is 1951. This is a good half decade after most of the things that I think of as noir. Well, run run us through the plot of this this movie, Zach, and tell us what what kind of things stood out for you. Well, I mean, we kind of already touched base on most of it. Uh, two gentlemen uh, coincidentally run into each other on a train. And uh, one of them is a famous tennis player. The other one well, is amateur tennis player. Well, okay, yeah. People know him. He's yes. a, he he has a lighter engraved with his initials. I think he's made it in the world. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> no, you got those at graduation in the forties. Oh wow. Uh, From preschool. Yeah. <laughs> From preschool. Uh, so yeah, they meet on the train, and they both have uh, people in their lives that might make it easier for them if they just happen to not be there anymore. So this guy, he has a great idea. I'll kill your person and you'll kill mine and we'll all be happy because obviously no one will catch us that way because it's too perfect. What what makes it perfect? What makes this the perfect murder? Uh, well. What happens if I, nothing. you know. No, it's I mean. It's not a perfect murder. Well. But they have, no, they have no ties to they each other. They have no ties to one another. That's what sure. makes it the perfect murder. So there's no motive no, for. no motive. There's no motive for Bruno played by Robert Walker in this film. There's no motive for him to go kill Guy's wife, Miriam. No motive. So, you know, if, if detectives are trying to track down, okay, who's going to be most likely to kill the wife who's pregnant with another man? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Lots of infidelity on that side. Who are we going to suspect? That guy over there that no one's ever seen in this town before? No. The husband? No. He's got an alibi. The boyfriend? Henry, well, the janitor? Yeah. No. So in a sense, it's it's not a terrible idea. In theory. In theory. Because it doesn't work because you're putting a lot of trust in another person that you don't know, and you're completely removing the element of guilt of, well, and it, oh, it wait, also I'm allowing work. someone to kill someone that uh, has played an important role in my life. Am I okay with this? Right. Obviously, this guy was not completely... It, it, it also doesn't work because these two idiots are now constantly entwined with one another after this right. happens, thus kind of destroying the they have no relationship. Well, and, well, and, and, and it and it doesn't work because one of them didn't agree to it. Really, right. you get right down to it. That's the reason why it doesn't. <laughs> well, yeah. Had they both agreed to it, it may well could have worked. It'd be a different movie. Well, yeah. Bruno is certainly somebody who is unhinged. Uh, he is uh, someone that Elbonzo doesn't think right. Seek- uh, he comes from upper class, mm-hmm. rich father, uh, wealth, basically can do what, he, do what he wants. Seems like it. Father wants him to go get a job. But, right. you know, and again, 
everybody in the movies from the 1950s looked like they were in their early 60s. So Bruno's <laughs> been putting up with this for quite a time, quite a while. Um, I have a question, by the yeah, way. Yeah, go ahead. I know that Robert Walker mm-hmm. wasn't in anything after this because Robert Walker passed away soon after this movie. Who does he look like? Because I spent this whole movie he going, looks he looks like, like somebody. Yes, he looks like the guy from, you, you used to see him a lot. He's dead now. Um, he play, He often plays a lot of senators in roles and he's got a very slick haircut. Dang it. I know who you're, ta- I know who you're talking about. It'll come to me at some point, I, what movie he's been in, but show. yes, he does look very much like you look, I mean, he is actor. like a dead ringer for somebody that I've seen in millions of things. Yes. Yes. He has very close resemblance to that, but okay. So go ahead, Zach, with your story. We'll, we'll come back to actors here in just a little bit. Yes. So, uh, Bruno is all gung ho on this idea. He um, eventually carries out the murder of Guy's wife, wife. who has is, an is interesting relationship uh, with Guy. Um, so Guy doesn't like her. And uh, so eventually Bruno kills her and guy is kind of freaking out because he's like oh this dude i just met on a train killed someone and now he expects me to kill his father because that was the apparent deal that we made in his mind but i don't want to do that and mm-hmm. um so it's kind of a ring around um what would be the best way to deal with the situation guy has political ties with his new uh favorite woman Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to figure out how to get around the uh, suspicion by the police that he, in fact, killed his wife. Um, well, he's got a tail the entire movie. I mean, he yes, can't he go does. anywhere because the police yeah. do suspect him. He doesn't have a tight alibi because they go to check on his right. house when they're trying to contact him. He's, he's not, not there. there. He was on a train. The, the guy, guy that was on the train that he had a conversation with was so blasted out of his mind that he can't even remember. <laughs> can't even remember what happened. So right, so he uh, is he is a, a you were prime singing a suspect song about for the murder. Um, he he is not the murderer, but he does know who it is. Um, yep. But he uh, does he never actually tells the police. No, oh, he never tells the police about Bruno. No, no. Because then they'll believe no. that he, he was conspiring with right, him to right, right. Um, plan that, it out. Basically, he time. thinks that they'll they'll think that he did. Because right. Bruno would tell them, we had sure. this deal to kill each other's people. <laughs> and then they both go to jail and right. are never seen again. But that doesn't happen. And um, Guy hatches a plan. And it uh, kind of works in the end. Eventually, okay. after a crazy merry-go-round incident. Or no, carousel and- incident. The most tense game of tennis. Oh, yeah, that's true. You know, I was I'm glad you brought that up, Matthew, because, you know, when we get into what are the most intense moments of the scene, it's not, is Bruno going to grab the lighter and get out to the island? It's this cutting right. back and mm-hmm. forth of the tennis match, and it's just like, yep. holy crap, this is more intense than, yeah. than Miriam getting strangled or the chase by the cops. Uh, that goes on. Yeah. That tennis match is super well ed- edited for tension. 
and it makes it even better in that I have no idea how tennis is scored. Yeah. So mm-hmm. at any given point, it could be like, oh no, double jeopardy. Now he has to fight the space monkeys. And you're like, wait, did he win? Did oh crap. Yeah. It and was- then the guy is like, he only has to win three more matches to have the game, <laughs> at which point two games means that he wins the match, except for a rubber match when they have to roll the eight ball down the center ring. Oh, I, was, I, I, mean, I actually do know a little bit about scoring of tense, uh, tennis and it in the way they funk, they uh, scored it was was kind of tense. Was was it? Of the, yeah, because of the matches and they yeah. got into like essentially got into a, a form of overtime at one point. Were you on the tennis team? Uh, no, oh. Pooner does not have tennis. We did oh, okay. play tennis in our really crappy court, but uh, fiance's little brother plays tennis. Ah, so okay. I'm, I'm all up on the, so on the tennis. If team. you win a game, you can then win a set. And if you win a yes. set, you can win a match. Right. And if you win a match, it means you win the game, which brings you back around. It's like that <laughs> yeah. episode of Cosmos where things get small and then they get big again. I, for me, that that uh, that tennis match, like it, it, like he he just like blasts the first uh, game, right? He just like mm-hmm. a pow, yeah, like comes yeah. out of nowhere, starts winning. I'm like, all right, he's winning, and then I was like, well, why is he doing that? He should just throw the match, right? Yeah. Like, I was like, if he needs to get out there because this is a life and death situation, he should just throw the match. Yeah, but he, exactly. he can't. He, 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 he could have pulled a, a, a Jerry versus Milos episode and just completely whiffed the ball. Would have been uh-huh. fine. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's his job. That would be like sure. saying to you, Rodrigo, you know, throw this episode of Critical Hit. Um, If it means not going to jail, I might. <laughs> That mean, but it means you have to you have to sell my jokes, all of my jokes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Oh man, that was hilarious, Matthew. Just now, <laughs> jerk. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> so, what did you uh. think of this story? I mean, here you've got. This real kind of – and we get this idea of crisscross and doubles that goes go on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've got somebody who's very light and good-hearted in the form of Guy. Even though he hates his wife, he's still – you know, he wants to do the good thing. And she's like, but, eh, I'm not going to give you the divorce. And he's like, woman, we're going down to the lawyer right now and smack her around or anything like that. He's just like, ooh, that girl, I so want to give her a pinch. But- well, he actually says, <laughs> I could strangle her. I don't know. There was a train going by at the time. They, so yeah, They yeah, make yeah. a point of her being as close to a, a, a godless whore as you can oh, get yeah, away yeah, with yeah. in 1951. Yeah. Because, I mean, they make a point. She's like, well, I'm pregnant with someone else's man, but I'm going to make you raise him. And then she goes out on her little date with two guys at yeah, once. And guys. I'm just like, yeah. <gasps> Yeah, and I mean, they go into the Tunnel of Love together, and there's a lot of it's grabbing and poking guys. and doing other things in the Tunnel of Love, and then they That's get onto what this we call Make Out Island. A very strong metaphor. Yeah, yeah you and, then, take- and then she sees uh, Bruno and starts flirting with Bruno. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so they, they do a good job of making her, at least for 1951, the worst possible person. And so you don't yes. feel bad when, uh, when they kill her. I mean... <laughs> You don't feel as yeah, sure. Totally sure. I, honestly, I mean, that, that right there is a great example. You know, we were talking on uh, Rebel Without a Cause mm-hmm. about, you know, somebody murdering a bunch of puppies. And, you know, back then it apparently wasn't a big deal. Like, this woman has an unborn child inside her. And nobody at any point goes, 
that woman had an unborn child inside her. Like well, that, because that nobody perspective prob- is just not there. Nobody probably knew, knew because uh, there's the point early on when they get to the... Well, he knew, but nobody else does because there's a point where she's on and a double date. he never says that. There's a point when they're on the True. double date where she, they're, where she just constantly is eating food and they're like, why are you so hungry? She's going, oh, I got these cravings and she's eating the ice cream. She goes, oh, I could go for a hot dog. And then she's like, oh, can't we have some popcorn? And she just keeps, you know, there's that implication that if they mm-hmm. would have kept pressing her on why she was so hungry, those two guys could have figured it out. But it's really shocking. Does, does just, Bruno know she's pregnant? Yeah. Uh, no, Bruno doesn't uh, know. Yeah, Bruno right. doesn't know. Guy does. Guy does, Guy yes. may be the only one that knows. Okay. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Bruno did know a lot about them. Well, well, that's Bruno's- from the society page stuff that he was following. It, sure. It's almost, it's almost, you know, Bruno comes out and says, look, you want to marry the senator's wife, mm-hmm. uh, the senator's daughter, because I saw you two in the society pages and didn't say you were going to get married. But aren't you already married? Hmm. That seems to be. So if you think about it, there's a lot of setup that Bruno probably this wasn't an accidental meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. And Bruno represents oh, the very dark side of this human nature where it's just like. Everything he talks about is how do you plot the perfect murder? How do you kill somebody? Why is it okay to kill somebody? When can you get away from killing somebody? And why can't I do whatever it is I want to do? You know, he goes through that long list of, I believe people should be able to do anything that they've wanted to do before they die. Mm-hmm. And he starts He's rambling a total things sociopath. off. Oh, he is. He is total, total spook, total spooky character in this. And I think that makes yeah, him but- a very interesting character. And as far as characters go, the acting, I mean, you couldn't have cast a better cast for this movie. No. Robert Walker is eerie in every scene. And he has this big, friendly smile that never quite reaches his eyes. And there are points where he's just, you know, it's just him and the camera. and you Or you see him talking to somebody, and he's off camera, and he's not mic'd. And it's like Hannibal Lecter creepy watching Robert Walker inhabit this terrible person. It is, I mean, it's an impressive chunk of acting for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, every act, I mean, every actor serves their, their role perfectly. You've got Farley and you've got Walker and you've got uh, Laura <laughs> Elliott from Farley. Miriam uh, plays Miriam. You've got um, yep. Annie Morton, Ruth Roman, who is the Senator's daughter, even the Senator who doesn't really have anything much to say. Uh, Leo uh, right. Carroll. What a great, I he's mean, that guy, you look though. at that guy and you're like, that guy looks like a senator. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yes, uh, Bruno a, shows up at the party. He's a high society fellow. Yeah, Bruno shows up at the party and he goes and introduces himself to some guy and he goes, oh, you're a judge, aren't you? The guy looks like somebody who would be a judge. The old ladies are the twittering old ladies that you see at parties. And uh, Bruno's mother is, you know, very coddling of and, him. And a perfect role. I mean, gosh, the acting, and, the acting and the casting was so great in this movie. Yeah, his mother is actually Aunt Clara from Bewitched, who yes. <laughs> almost always plays those, oh, let me make you some soup, darling, kind of roles. And she's so doting, and you kind of look at this, and you're like, oh, that's such a sweet old lady. I wonder if that's why her son is such a nut bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's been given everything all his life, you know, and he's never learned about anything real. He's just like, oh, let's, no, let's have some soup. I don't know. Not making psychological adjustments, but it's Aunt Clara, and that made me laugh. Sure. So um, Raymond Chandler had just come off um, his first screenplay, Double Indemnity, that he did with Billy Wilder. Another good movie, Zach. That's a good one, too. And um, Chandler thought that this was just going to be a silly story. He thought it was kind of silly throughout. Again, this is based on a book, and in the book, Bruno 
comes off as more, um, there's more of a homoerotic subtext going on with the sociopath and his, hmm. which, um, which I thought, I thought for 1951, I thought there was plenty of, yeah, did you think, quite yeah, a bit I mean, there were, there were some interesting parts, but I don't think it was as overt as, um, no, no, rebel no, without no. a cause. Now, apparently, oh. you know, again, in the, in the original story, it's much more no, obvious. You know, you know why, you know why it wasn't as overt as rebel without a cause, because here it was intentional. Yeah, Whereas yeah, yeah. in Rebel Without a Cause, it, I don't think it was. <laughs> what, they were is, trying to sneak it in under the radar at best. Was that the case? With no, no, no. Characters? I think in Rebel Without a Cause, they were just like, oh, this is a kid. And he's into this guy as like his dad. And that's why mm-hmm. to us it seems super gay because it's like, no, these two kids are the same age. Clearly is into him. I think in um, uh, Strangers on a Train, they were like, oh, yeah, this guy's gay. So let's make him super gay for like the 50s, <laughs> which means he's like kind of maybe Probably a little gay. Uh, wasn't it the same way with the adaptation of the Maltese Falcon? Wasn't there? Um, oh, with uh, the Peter Lorre character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Same way. Was Cairo and Cairo. Yeah, yeah. Um, apparently, though, Chandler and Hitchcock hated each other. Ooh. Ooh. To where Chandler yeah. was openly mocking Hitchcock. Oh man. Uh, about his size. And his giant well, upright base. Yes, yeah, I'm sure it's a little bit more than his giant upright base. Just the fact that he was huge at this time. Um, Hitchcock fluctuated in weight many times over his career. Um, this mm-hmm. what's, And I think what makes this movie really stand out for me and what I really, really like about it is that there's this, such attention to detail in like every frame shot of this piece, how the lighting is done, the, the props and the details. Come to find out that Hitchcock kind of, I don't know, uh, I don't want to say fell by the wayside, but he just, the films previous to this one for a couple of years, just, he didn't really have his heart into it. And then when you hit this, he jumps back into, I'm attacking this movie with gusto. And he starts becoming super involved with every aspect of the production. Mm-hmm. And I think it shows in every single frame of this, of this movie. Um, yeah. And it now, really, I'd be, I'd be interested to see, because, you know, you did mention, I'd be interested to see if Hitchcock mm-hmm. did better movies when he was fat. I, I'm 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 wondering if that uh, you know maybe that difference of not having to focus mm-hmm. on something meant that he could put more focus into the movies. I don't know. That's just something that popped in my head while you were talking. Oh, that's interesting. But I I do agree with you because what was the one the one that, right before this that I didn't care for? Oh, well, I can't remember what question. was Hitchcock. Uh, Anyway, there's one that came out like right before this. It was a Hitchcock movie that is just kind of it's it's not that it's bad. It's just kind of oh, bah that yeah. I don't use meh because I really hate it when people use meh. But if I were the kind of person that used meh, it would be the most meh of any meh that ever did meh. Wow, yeah, it, just it, kind of a blur. Interesting that uh, Hitchcock casts his daughter in this movie. Oh really? As the, young, as the young as the young sister. Babs? Yeah. And I really? and I thought she did a spectacular job. Oh yeah, I, I think loved she did her. too. She really she comes off as she really comes off as the um um She's she's the the genre savvy character. Oh yeah, most yeah, definitely. She's like that. she's she's, she's like proto Velma. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, she's exactly she's, Velma. Actually actually, um not just this character, but I was surprised at the um, the girlfriend. Uh, da, 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 what's her Roman, name again? Roman. Last name is Roman, I think. Yeah, the yeah. First yeah. girlfriend or the girlfriend girlfriend? The senator. The the girlfriend girlfriend as opposed to the wife. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, and Morton. Uh, Ruth. Yeah, Ruth. Um, 
Uh, oh no, no, no. Anne Morton is the character's name. Yeah, yeah. Yes. right. So Ruth um, the actors. Right. Uh, so yeah, I was surprised at both of them because they're not just there. Like I was kind of like I was like, oh, there are women in this movie. I'm sure there'll be set dressing. You know, mm-hmm. just because you know, and the, the, usually it it's. It's kind of like that, unfortunately, in older movies um, or or in movies in general, because newer movies aren't always particularly good about this. But uh, and figures out what's going on. She oh, like, yeah, she just by observing. straight up. She's straight up. Sherlock's it out. <laughs> um, and Barbara is super helpful throughout the whole movie. Like, mm-hmm. ha- like she they're like, oh, what should we do? We should do this. And then she just like spills all of this, like, um, like they're like, well, the cops are going to do this and then they're going to do this and it's going to do this. Oh, and it's really exciting and blah, blah, blah. And like, they show you that she has an interest in this. <laughs> oh yeah. To the yeah. point where um, she says, wouldn't it be so exciting if you did kill your wife so you could marry my sister? You know, there's that. Line <laughs> yeah, yeah, that exactly. Says. So she's like, it's, it's a very cool character. Cause she's, she's young um, but she's very smart and she's modern and also like really like a good person, like interested mm-hmm. in helping uh, the main character and her sister. So the, it, I, I was I was really surprised to about a third of the way through the movie encounter this character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of made the movie for me. Yeah, really strong characters, both of them. Um, what are some what are some overall themes that you were getting out of this movie, Zach? Um, I kind of hinted at one of them already, but oh well, I don't know what your hint was, but uh, the big <laughs> theme idea that um I thought kind of drove this movie was the idea of um be careful who you meet because it might change your life, or small, seemingly in- innocent interactions could lead to horrible catastrophes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big thing, themes is doubles. Oh, how okay. there's this duality going on. So in, right at the beginning of the film, we see two different cabs. We see their two different feet mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. walking. We see them getting on the train and throughout this entire sequence, we never see who they are. We don't see their faces, mm-hmm. but we can tell yeah. by their dress, the way they walk, their the baggage brackets. that the, the, the baggage that's being carried. One of them is probably more um, professional something. Uh, because of the way he's dressed. And the other one is obviously a uh, playboy of some kind because he's wearing the the crazy two-tone shoes mm-hmm. and the uh, mm-hmm. uh, looser mm-hmm. cuff on the yeah. pant. I, as I was watching that, I was like, I know that I am supposed to be getting something out of this, but I don't know enough about 50s American <laughs> footwear to understand mm-hmm. what I'm looking at. That would have, I looked you know, at those wild saddle shoes and I was like, ooh. Yeah. That's telling me Sa- yeah. that's not something that you would typically wear. I mean, that would be like you're going out to party type shoe, mm. you know, like I'm right. I'm going out to have fun. I mean, if you're a business person, you wear black brown. That's it. Two tone shoes gotcha. kind of kind of represents a little something off, especially in the middle of the day, which is really interesting because at the end of the movie, when guy is running away, he's running around in a brown pair of uh, tweed pants, a black blazer. And then tennis shoes, which you would never see anybody running around with uh, in that day if there was something weird going on. Now, today, that's like my normal yeah. mode of dress. Right? <laughs> but back then, it would totally not be um, yeah. in someone's right mind if they were running around like that, especially in a train station. And again, that dress kind of represents what's going on in the character's mind. So you see 
interesting framing going on uh, with with the with the two characters where one will be in darkness and one will be in light. Usually Guy is in the light and Bruno is in the dark. Um, you know, Hitchcock, even uh, when we're talking about crazy characters and costuming, Hitchcock designed Bruno's lobster tie that we see at the beginning of the of the movie where he points out the nice. Bruno uh, mm-hmm. clip clip tie. Mm-hmm. And just this fact that, you know, two, 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 two keeps popping up here again and again and again throughout the film is something that I think Hitchcock is trying to, to, to show us. And if you watch the lighting, I mean, this is more a little bit more technical, but if you watch the lighting beyond just putting a character in shadow or out of shadow, there's actual times where the light cuts the frame in half or creates a V across kind of uh, thing that's going on um, in the shadows that really helps separate and corner characters in different parts of the frames. Bruno is obviously cornered in a lot of the frames a lot of the time uh, or framed off in the, in the uh, picture uh, a lot of the times just by the lighting. And it's, man, it's just, I, I sit there and I'm just thinking of the high contrast in that lighting and the light in the dark and the playing who's the good and who's the bad. You know, here you've got mm-hmm. Guy is living in this luxury, very modern, even in the senator's home. It's very modern. And then you've got Bruno, who lives in this very dark, gothic um, house. Mm-hmm. I look at this and I can say, Zach, if you want to learn about lighting and you want to learn about super dramatic lighting and creating these areas in which your actors can play in and still create super depth in the scene, this is a movie to study because I'm sitting there and I was talking to Rodrigo well, was it a couple of days ago. I was like, when was the last time you saw this movie? And I guess it had been a couple of years for you, right? Rodrigo. It's probably been um, almost 20 yeah. years. It's probably been almost 15, 20 years since I saw this movie and just everything came flooding back about look at the sharp contrast. Look at how we're separating everybody. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, anything you want to touch on in, as far as lighting goes? I mean, we're kind of in the technical part of the, um, of the show, but I mean, yeah, I know like a big scene that stuck out to me, the lighting standpoint was when guy sneaks into Bruno's house and oh, yeah, he's yeah. going to, we think possibly murder his dad, but he comes and tries to save him. Um, mm-hmm. he gets into the bedroom and we find out Bruno is in the bed cause he figures guy's going to do something like this. But, um, <laughs> I believe in that scene, all of the lighting is just coming from a practical light of mm-hmm. the bedside lamp. Mm-hmm. Looks like it, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, that that really stood out to me, especially because um, when you when he finally gets into the room, Bruno or not Bruno, guy is standing there, and his face is like completely dark, and mm-hmm. then Bruno hits that light, and he's like just perfectly illuminated, and it's like oh, bad times for guy. And I, that I thought that was a really. Um, well it's seen and then i liked the use of or just the uh, uh the the fair lights mm-hmm. all the illumination and mm-hmm. the neon and stuff mm-hmm. yeah I mean, it kind of loses it a little bit awesome. because uh i've that's the only time i've ever seen i go to the fair and i see it in color and so a fair with all those crazy lights is a little bit more Mm-hmm. Uh, just because they're all super vibrant and super different colored and everything you can't really get that from the black and white but it's still a was an interesting look to the film. Do you have anything to add there on the lighting, uh, Rodrigo? Uh, yeah, I think um, the I think that there is kind of this like uh, 
double or duality kind of thing. Um, and I think that uh, there's a lot of times when light and shadow kind of emphasize what's happening in the scene. That scene that uh, Zach mentioned at the end of it, you know, guy walks out of the room and you see into it. Um, and it's, um, uh, just totally spaced out on his name, right? Bruno, mm-hmm. um, sitting on the bed and there's a giant shadow of, um, like, there's just like this giant yeah, yeah. head, like Bruno yeah. head behind him. Yeah. Um, and it just like really emphasizes the, the, the lighting at any given time emphasizes who has the control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, so it's like there's Bruno and he's this little guy sitting on this bed, mm-hmm. you know, in, in what would otherwise be a very uh, um, vulnerable position. But you can see his giant silhouette on the wall mm-hmm. uh, showing you that he's he's got uh, he's got the upper hand. Yeah. Something similar happens in the Tunnel of Love sequence yes, where that's what I was just oh, yeah. you see you see Miriam on the wall toying with her little boy toys and you see Bruno's shadow come up and just kind of almost engulf hers. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I honestly thought that he was going to kill her in the tunnel yep. of love. Yeah, well, and yep, that's, yep. that's the implication that you get because you see the shadow starting to approach, his uh, Bruno's shadow starting yeah. to approach, and then you cut to a scene right as soon as the shadows interact or intersect, you cut to a scene outside the tunnel of love and she immediately starts screaming. Mm-hmm. And you're like, holy crap, uh-huh. this is where he's doing it. But They're then as the, as the boats come out, you see that it's, you know, s- some slap sure. and tickle going on and 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 um, and then Bruno's just kind of still following behind. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's kind of his use of the audience expectation mm-hmm. of what should happen on a film and then subverting yep. it to yep. lead mm-hmm. up to a bigger moment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, another, I think another reading that you can take of that sort of thing is that uh, Bruno is a shadow. Like he right. is, he's actually guy's shadow. He's the dark side of guy. Um, you can see that in the, how prominent his uh, Bruno's shadow specifically is in a lot of places. And also when they're driving through DC and you see like the perfect white steps of, of the buildings, but you see this like speck in the center of them mm-hmm. of, of, of uh, Bruno looking at them standing there on the, yep, exactly. The just kind of marring everything. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's kind of this idea too, that uh, his life would be perfect if not for Bruno and that Bruno's kind of like this, this both um, guys uh, dark side and also this kind of issue, this unresolved issue, even visually, he's kind of mm-hmm. this weird, mm-hmm. uncomfortable, unresolved issue for guy. Mm-hmm. Why don't we hit some of our associate producers? This yeah. Week, let's give a shout out to our associate producers this week of Dwayne Harder, Janus Stretzbeck, uh, Jeffrey Sire, Brian Gatley, <laughs> Terry Oles, Jordan Medina, Alan Bruce, Brian Ganninger, Daniel Weiss, Brian Ganninger, Ivan Peterson, William it's a Hathcock. Different, different Brian Ganninger. Ah, uh, where did I go? William Hathcock, uh, Yosef Carudo, Christopher Hudspeth, and Michelle Nelson. Thank you, one and all, for making this episode of Zach on Film possible. You know the uh, little old man crawling under the. Uh... The, oh my the god, carousel. that was terrifying. Oh gosh, yeah. Yes. That was actually a, a little old man crawling under a carousel. Oh, I was wondering if that shot inches inches from it. inches from that, death. Inches from insane. death. Now granted, this was all um sped up. Sped up. But they actually had a man yeah, going but, under there, and Hitchcock would later say this was one of the most terrifying scenes that I've ever done because this man could have gotten seriously hurt mm-hmm. if he had yeah. moved his head one way or the other or raised his head up a little bit too high. So that's an ingenious shot. And today I don't think you would be allowed. I do not think you would be allowed to do that. No. 
Um, even with really great stunt people, I think you'd have way, 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 way many more precautions going on like mm. that. Or, or they could do it, but the thing would be jacked up and they would be uh, super telephotoed in to make it look like he oh, was yeah, right collapse on it, it down. But yeah. it was, it'd be Not from that angle, needed. you wouldn't be able to no, do that. No, they'd have to yeah. do a different angle. Yeah, yeah. But that'd be the only way they could do it if he's actually putting them under there. I'd give you an A for that one, Zach, for pointing those two out together and how... Uh, how yeah, telephoto yeah. shots collapse your frames and, and make things uh, appear closer together. Yeah. The other thing that no, I really noticed in this, and there's a lot of rear projection going on in this uh, in this yeah. movie, and rear projection is where you'd actually go and film something like you'd put a camera on a carousel and have it spin around, and then during the actual filming of the scene, the carousel is stationary, but you have a big movie screen behind the actors, and you project that that video up on the screen, so um, it looks like they're they're doing that. Um, in that, in that environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that how really they, also go ahead. how they do the murder sequence? The, the oh, actual. That, yeah. With the strangulation and the glasses, we'll get to that in just a second. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was going to say the other thing that really stands out to me besides the strangulation scene is even though there, there is a great use of depth of field in this, where there are some shots where you can see, Everything from up close to way back in a lot of those shots, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty amazing. And I, some, in some of those, I think there's either either, uh, either some uh, matting or forced perspective or something going on to give you that big depth. In fact, I know in one scene, uh, there is some forced perspective because um, right at the end of the movie, I think it's right at the end of the movie, uh, where they're waiting for a phone call. And then there's a shot of the phone in the foreground and Babs further back and the phone's ringing and everybody mm-hmm. kind of looks at it. You couldn't get Babs and the phone in focus at the same time. So instead of using mm-hmm. a diopter, which kind of splits the lens and lets you focus on two different objects at the same time, they actually made an oversized phone oh, to really? put into the scene <laughs> so that it looks so that it looks like it's in the foreground when in reality it's just a big phone sitting closer to to uh, Patricia. Oh my gosh! And then when she, and so you see her reach for it, but then when you cut to her picking it up, uh, it's Small a normal size phone. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. That's, wow, that's amazing. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Perfect. Um, so, I mean, there's some other miniature stuff like the carousel actually blowing up as a miniature. Um, yeah. That's photographed in there and then composited on or matted on or layered on. In the in the case of what Matthew's talking about, there's this awesome shot. And I don't know, Matt, uh, Rodrigo, you guys probably talked about this in film school. Um, the shot where Miriam gets murdered and her glasses fall off. And you witness the entire murder take place in the reflection of her glasses. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic yeah. in how it's executed. Um, yes. But it's a lot of double exposure going on because Hitchcock had to have everybody or had uh, Walker and um, who's a woman who played Miriam. I forgot her name. Um, Laura Elliott. Laura Elliott. Um, they went into to a studio afterwards after they shot the glasses and then had a giant reflector, concave reflector. Uh, that they had on the ground and then um, had the actors kind of restage everything. And they're shooting into that giant mirror, this concave mirror, and then double exposing it with the glasses to make it look like it was layered on top. Because man, again, technology, Mm. then you could probably get a pretty good focus, but not that good of a focus. Did you guys talk about that that shot in film school, Rodrigo? No, no, we didn't. We didn't spend a lot of time on strangers on a train. So I was I was actually not uh, not aware of what technique they used. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, you can, there are several times as I watched it, and the version that we watched, uh, listeners, is the one that you could get on iTunes. 
there are a couple of different versions that you can get. Um, one of them is a British version that does not include the um, the tagged on ending where they're um, on the train and the clergyman goes, oh, what is your name? Mm. And then they get up and leave. That was only for American audiences. If you get it on Aren't DVD, guy, Haynes? if you get it on DVD, um, there's two versions of this. And I thought at one point I either rented the DVD or owned the DVD because it has an A side and a B side on the DVD. And on one side was the theatrical edit. And the other side, I think, was like more of a director's edit that included more of the homosexual uh, undertones of of. Uh, of Bruno. Interesting. So. Mm -hmm. wonder where people could get that That's DVD. Oh, I bet if they were on the internet and they were like, oh, where should I get cool pop culture news? I would suggest go majorspoilers.com. And then once you get to the website, you're like, oh, I really want this cool copy of Strangers of the Train. You should click on the Amazon.com link um, and then search for it. You'll find it. It's not going to cost you any extra than that price listed if you go through the link. But a little bit will come back to major spoilers to help us uh, say cool things like this. You know, another shot that struck me that really wasn't as overt. It wasn't like a big shiny shot that you're like, oh, that was super pretty or, you know, like the explosion of the carousel. Mm -hmm. That's that's really impressive. But the shot that got me was when guy punches Bruno in the face and we get a head on oh, yeah, shot yeah. of yeah. guy's fist coming and then we immediately cut to a reverse of Bruno taking the punch and flying away. I think actually. I love that shot. I think there's actually a flash frame in between. There there's is. the moment where the fist comes right up to the screen and then there's a quick flash, like maybe a f two or three two, frames, yeah, frames. And then you cut to Bruno falling on his butt. Yeah, Which, yeah it's, it's, it's really a really cool. great really shot. Because you get the Bruno perspective of I'm being punched, yeah. and then you get the guy perspective of I just punched Bruno. And it's mm -hmm. something that I, when I watch this, I'm like, that really stuck out to me as clever, but really well done. And the kind of thing I've never, you know, I don't see that in movies, which I thought, you know, was really nice. And it got around any questions of how do we really set this up to sell a fake punch? Mm -hmm. You don't have to. The impact isn't shown. You get point of view of throwing a punch. You get point of view of taking a punch. And your mind fills in the gap in between, which is yeah, yeah. brilliant. Well, I mean, there's there's a couple of times where we see things through um, Bruno's eyes. When he's strangling Miriam. When he mm -hmm. is uh, getting punched. And again, towards the end, where he's kicking uh, Guy's fingers to try to get him off off the carousel and kill yes. him. Yes. Oh, that's oh, yeah. horrifying. We also we also basically see inside his brain as he mm -hmm. uh, looks at um, the uh, the sister while yes. he's choking the old lady. Yes. yes. And he, <laughs> he has this weird fixation that because the glass and it's yeah, not the even glasses. the sa exact same pair of glasses. But the younger sister and Miriam have glasses that are very similar to one another. And when Bruno sees that, I think this is the whoever was mentioning guilt. I think, Zach, earlier you were mentioning this uh, absence of mm -hmm. guilt is that he, you know, maybe triggering some kind of guilt reaction of what have I done? I've killed this person. He just locks up and freezes every yeah. time he sees sees her. And uh, again, yep. uh, Patricia uh, Hitchcock comes in with a great line later uh, and really uh, sells it when she says it felt like he was strangling me. Because he was looking right yes. at me, and it's just like, this is great. Yeah, and I mean, there are some similarities in the way the characters are presented mm -hmm. to where you can make you can make the stretch 
in your head. It's not like we're looking at two completely different people. But the the scene the scene where we first see him, you know, I'm going to pretend to strangle you, old lady, haha, and they cut to her and she's standing there with that horrified look on her face, like somebody punched her or yeah, something, yeah. just completely stunned looking at this scary, scary man like you'd look at a bug. That that girl could act. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't know if it's like genetic or if daddy was, you know, mean and terrible and made her act. I'm sorry. You hear these stories about Hitch and his actors and he was just like, well, I wanted her to be scared. So I shot her in the face. (laughs) So let me ask you this, Zach. Now that you've seen Strangers of the Train and you had said, oh, this is horrible bosses. Does how does this uh, impact your now rethinking of horrible bosses or does it? Um, no, it isn't. It isn't less in the movie for me. I mean, they go at the idea in opposite ways where where uh, Strange on a Train is a thriller and um, yeah, horrible just, bosses. Just a thriller movie and okay. thriller horror boss is just a um, kind of just straight comedy of mm-hmm. fart jokes and. Drug jokes. If if you look on Wikipedia, they've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve items that they list directly inspired by uh, Strangers on the Train, film and television projects. So you've got Throw Mama from the Train, Horrible Bosses. You've got several different uh, television shows where an episode or two are inspired by or lifting from Strangers on a Train. And and I'm right. kind of I'm kind of you know sometimes I really like it when it's like oh I see what you're doing. This is you know. Sure. This is strangers on a train or, or whatever. There's other times though, when I, and maybe it's my expectation that this, you know, a show is so, so good that it should be better than having to go and take an idea from, from something else uh, in the past. I agree. And, and I get, I'm, I think well. we've talked about it on this show or one of the other shows, um, almost human where I think is a very fascinating mm-hmm. show. And then there's a whole episode that's nothing but a remake of the original die hard. And there's a difference between, remake and homage and i think right. that well maybe the, the execution can make all the difference in the world because there's an episode of castle which is a show that my wife loves yeah i saw an episode of castle that is basically a strangers on yes a train in fact that's one of the ones listed riff here. an homage right is it okay cool and it's something where it's it, it went straightforward but what it really did was it was it was kind of referencing and celebrating the movie and they you know they made a point in the in the episode of making sure we knew hey we're on Hitchcock's turf here this is out of respect and love that we're doing this whereas mm-hmm. if you're just telling somebody else's story again or if you're saying well here's our x episode here's our paintball episode whatever you do oh yeah here's mm-hmm. the here's you know, the one where the tr- two roommates you know you can take a theme like the two roommates have a fight and we're dividing the room down the middle right that's been right. done 100 million times you can times. do that but you can still do that in a way that is fascinating and tells you things about your characters in that new setup. Whereas I haven't seen Almost Human, but from your description, you know, it oh, sounds an awful lot like almost that was the problem. Ninety percent of the ninety percent of the show, there's like ten percent where they've really changed it up, and you're like, okay, cool, I like how they did this because the part where they're robbing isn't actually in the building that they're in, but a couple of banks that are scattered in this um, blackout zone. Mm-hmm. So you know that's a little bit different, but. Taking over the Nakatomi Towers, crawling through the air vent. I mean, all of that other stuff is right there. And it's like, when I saw that, I'm like, I'm so disappointed that you guys couldn't 
do this differently. Yeah. And it's almost like, like, like action. I think action movies are really difficult to, to, to do that with because in something like strangers on a train, what you're looking at is kind of plot and themes, right? Right. right. And then you kind of play with everything else around it, the characters and everything like that. But in an action movie, a lot of the time, the important part of an action movie are the actual shots, right? The actual movement, the actual action, the actual events that are happening right in front of you. So I, I'm really surprised that anybody would attempt to do an, an ode to Die Hard that wasn't more than like a quick yippee type joke. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, and I think many of our listeners will know which episode I'm talking about and you guys can go and find it. Right. Uh, but as soon as I saw that, I kind of lost all respect for that show and I've yet to go back to it. I, and so I didn't know if when you guys, uh, when you see Throw Mama from the train, you're like, oh yeah, this is a comedic take on mm-hmm. this. This isn't the, the thriller version of this. I think that's what this. I like is when they can take the idea and then remix it into a different genre where it's not mm-hmm. like, oh, we want to make a thriller. Let's just do Strange on the Train, mm-hmm. essentially. But now they're on a, I don't know, an airplane or something because no one takes yeah. trains in America. Strangers anymore. on a plane. Yeah. Strangers well, on a midtown snakes, bus. Snakes on a plane. Like, uh, but there's, there is also a point where that works. And, you know, forgive me for bringing up something, but Stephen had, we had the argument about why Cars 2 is not as good a movie. Oh, and yeah, Stephen yeah, repeatedly it's... said, it's just the man called Flintstone. <laughs> it is. And I'm like, well, I love the man called Flintstone. Yeah. And I really didn't hate Cars 2. I enjoyed bits and pieces of it. And I liked the things that they did in it. I didn't think it was as good as the first film because, you know, I think there was a lot more kind of a fart joke humor when you focus on Mater. But more importantly, the the aspects of it that were homaging or knocking off that earlier movie didn't wreck it for me, even knowing where it was coming from. And I think that there is a tendency to say, well, this story is based on X, so it's naturally less or naturally lesser because it's not quote unquote original. I, I, I can definitely see that point. But I would say that if, say, you know, you're looking at Strangers on a Train, which is kind of a cultural reference point for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. If you do say, you know, throw Mama from the train, that's a very funny movie. Yeah. Basically the same movie. Or if you look at, you know, there are many, many films that get into this weird kind of territory. And there was one that struck me earlier. Office Space has a little bit of this movie in it, too, in certain scenes. And sure. You can see that influence and you can see where it's coming through. And I don't necessarily think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think that it shows a lack of creativity on the creators of the derivative work so much as when you are on Hitchcock's turf, sometimes you have to tip your hat to the fact that you're on Hitchcock's turf and say, we're doing this cool plot that is clearly inspired by and referential of strangers on a train. Sure. And it would be incredibly douchey not to, well, you know, not to overtly recognize that. In, in the case of throw mama from the train, they say, Hey, remember that one movie about two strangers who meet on the train and they crisscross <laughs> that kind of stuff. You right. know, so they're making a reference right. to that and say, we ought to do the same experience. thing. Yeah. We, we ought to do the exact same thing. And I think that there's enough of a vector difference in Throw Mama from the Train uh, and um, Strangers on the Train. Because in this case, um, Guy is not trying to kill Mama every time, right? I mean, he's not going through and trying to kill the father every single time where Billy Crystal is 
basically, okay, I gotta kill this woman now. Uh, here's the frying pan joke. Here's the what joke. Here's the mm-hmm. final moment where he actually has to throw her from the train. Uh, you know, th- I think there's enough of a difference between that. And when I look at, you know, like uh, we were talking uh, another show or earlier about this, a shot for shot remake of Psycho. Why? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, that has well, in, ultimately. In my, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to just say in my mind, that's just, well, let's just rip this off whole cloth. Meh. Let's just colorize the original it's- and send it to theaters. I think I think ultimately what ends up happening, I think subconsciously for the majority of people who are who are aware that there's a previous version of something, then the the burden of entertainment or or value is on the new version, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So you watch Strangers on a even if you watch Throw Mama from the Train first, mm-hmm. knowing that Strangers on a Train is out there and going back and watching it. When you see similar things, you're more forgiving of Strangers on the Train because it came first. Right. Um, so when you see something like Throw Mama from the Train, if there's enough points of similarity and points of deviation, it actually makes it more fun if right. you've seen Strangers on the Train. Right, exactly. Right. Um, what becomes a problem, I think, for a lot of us is when there aren't enough, when there are too many points of similarity right. and not enough points of deviation in which point it starts to feel like a ripoff it's to a certain degree it's like a a cover of a song right right if somebody if somebody just gives you like the most truthful and heartfelt nirvana e version of um smells like teen spirit Mm -hmm. then you're gonna be like well what was the point of that you just played it exactly the way that nirvana did Mm -hmm. um but you get weird out to do his take on it and it's okay right (laughs) but there's also a problem where I think a lot of times these days we get creators who are in a spell where they make a movie that is so referential and so dependent on the previous work that their work doesn't make sense or doesn't hold together without knowing that it's a riff on Strangers or a Train or without you know having seen Strangers on a Train, the plot or the jokes or the story or the characters don't hold together. You have to have knowledge of that source material in order for it to make any sense. And that's why I think, you know, there's a big difference between doing a parody of something and satirizing something and paying an homage to something. Right. Right. There's a big difference when you look at all those parody movies where they're ripping off scenes from other movies that people have already seen and doing it in a really dumb way or, you know, having a sight gag. The Zucker Abraham Zucker people. Yeah. I mean, just throwing those kinds of things. Those are fine because that's parody. We are actually making fun of this this genre or this film style or this topic or whatever that may right, be. Right. Um, and, you know, you can say, well, I'm honoring a work and you're looking at a comic book cover of um, a crisis on infinite earth where Superman's holding Supergirl, And you see that played out now, probably about every, I don't know, every other year you see a cover that's, that's uh, homaging that or ripping it off minutes. or whatever. Every 20 minutes, pretty. Oh, sure. Homage. If we're going into, if we're going into comics, <laughs> comics are terrible. <laughs> well, I'm just using, that. I'm just you, using you that see, as an example. Yeah. Also, yeah, that you see, scene you see, is a ripoff like, of the Pieta by Michelangelo. Yeah, right. Every every three seconds, a new team of X Men bursts through a comic cover, <laughs> much to the horror of the current X Men team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> or even if you, as you mentioned, Rodrigo, you can have cover cover um, songs, mm-hmm. and you know, there's a whole great podcast out there called Coverville, where all Brian Ibbett plays is covers of songs that you know. And those are of enough of a deviation or enough of a different Some take on the songs to where I really like them. I've not heard a song that he's played that sounds exactly like the original. 
No, and I think because I think he specifically picks those out, and it's, yeah. I think it's because yeah. he's, he's figured out a pretty good formula, and I think the formula comes down to that. Enough points of similarity to be recognizable, yeah. exactly. but enough points of deviation to be something new. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. In the same way, if it has... If it doesn't have enough points of similarity, then you're actually looking at something else. Mm-hmm. If I if I say okay, this I'm gonna make it do a riff of Strangers on a Train, but the two people never meet. Also, there's no murder. It's <laughs> yes. actually not exactly. Strangers on a Train. Exactly, and I think right. that's the perfect. I think Rodrigo, you summed up my argument perfectly, and why I get so frustrated when pe- people are just like, eh. Remember that. Uh, remember that uh, scene from such and such. Let's just redo that. Redo that scene again. Mm-hmm. Right, it just seems right. I don't know, not enough of it. Well, and there is there is a there is a, a another issue, which is trying to just copy something without that homage, right? Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And it kind of mm-hmm. depends on who you are, or whatever. I, a long time ago, on the Major Spoilers podcast, uh, we reviewed a book about the super guy that gets thrown in jail mm-hmm. into super jail, mm-hmm. and as they're panning away from his like Alcatraz type prison, he's like, "I'm not trapped in here with them; they're trapped in here with me." And we all went, "What? Yeah, yeah like yeah. you can't steal a line from Watchmen, but it's an homage." Like, is it, you know, you know, I, I mean, and, and that excuse can certainly be thrown out, but it it didn't feel yeah, like yeah, an yeah. homage. Exactly. It was just like, oh, that's a cool line. That's that's what characters say in this situation. Mm-hmm. But if people still have enough of a cognizance of the source material, it's like you can do a like an assembly line joke, mm-hmm. um, and people will be like, well, that's an I Love Lucy thing, right? Um, but it's 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 difficult. To, like it, it would be like if you had the exact same bit, right? Not just an assembly mm-hmm. line joke with your characters, but the exact same thing. Then you're like, well, that's, that that is just straight out of I Love Lucy. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And that's you know the I Love Lucy gag is enough of a difference from um, the Charlie Chaplin bit where you can get away right. you can get away right. with it. But you know, look at you know half dozen any Disney Channel teenage shows and they're going to rip off yes. the I love Lucy scene. Exactly. Pizza, cookies, burritos, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. Mm, I could go for a pizza. Burrito. I like burritos. Pizza burrito are nice. Burrito yeah. I think good. a big part wow. of me is just, you like, can tell, you can tell we've been podcasting for so long that <laughs> our recording shows. Somebody mentions food and it completely derails a conversation. <laughs> yeah. It gave Zach a chance to jump in. Um, that for me and my idealistic, 20 yourself that like we're talking about like nowadays we talk about people homaging or just doing a whole cloth rip off of a thing it's like you are a talented person why not make something new it's like you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can hold yourself to a higher standard of we're going to create something new right we don't we we can we can use what we've learned from the past and create something new um tie back in music again i listened um, to a quote from John Mayer one time when he was playing a live concert and he'll, he'll get mad at himself because he'll go on a long solo and he'll get mad at himself in the middle of it because he knows he's playing licks from guitar players he's heard before and that's all mm-hmm. he's playing is just he's just meshing together a bunch of licks and a thing he's not playing anything new mm-hmm. he's just putting together a bunch of licks he's heard guys play in the last but the audience years. loves it right sure okay but he knows he can do something better he can make something new he doesn't mm-hmm. have to pull from bb king and all these other guys to to fascinate the audience 
Yeah, maybe well, and the other thing yeah. is that this this line is different for everybody. Every person has that line oh, sure. of yep. when is this an homage and when is this a ripoff. Um, for some people, it's very shallow, right? It's like the moment that uh, somebody the moment that somebody has a mistaken identity plot um, is like, oh, that's that's a oh, man that's, called Flintstone. That's Shakespeare um, right there. That's the right, true exactly. dilemma. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's that, and it. It, it is no longer valid to them. And for some people, um, they might very much enjoy seeing a shot-by-shot shot remake of their favorite scene in a very slightly different context. Yeah. Hmm. And when you say, I'm going to remake Psycho shot-for-shot shot, the way Hitchcock did it, what you're basically doing is setting yourself an arbitrary limitation to see if you can still make art with that limitation. And in this case, the answer was no. But more importantly, it was something where that movie was not made to go out and, and be original. That movie was made to say, we love you, Hitchcock. I'm going to do something that kind of tries to celebrate you, but then turns out to be awful because Matthew McConaughey. Excuse me, Vince Vaughn. I always get those guys confused. <laughs> the same guy. It's 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 okay. One says your uh, money, uh, the other one says yeah. all right, all right, all right, all right, money. All right, all right, yeah, exactly. all right. But, it, you know, what it, what it really comes down to, and we've kind of gone way afield of Strangers on a Train, but what it really comes down to is, just like in this film, that line is different for everybody. And some people would kill a complete stranger's wife, and some people would not. <laughs> and I think that's important. Yeah, don't kill people. What did yeah, you? Ten uh, years ago, we had Steve Jobs. <laughs> well, you know, there's I forget who I forget who the writer was or the the screenwriter was. Somebody will shout it out in the comments, or one of you guys will remember. Where he's like, I wanted to learn how to write, so I took this book and I typed it word for word, so I could really see uh, how the words were being put together. Is this Quentin Tarantino who did this? That was that was a kid from Finding Forrester. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. This is actual somebody no, really did this. Now, dog. No, no, no. This is this is a this is a real life person who's just like you know. I want to learn how a story is created, and so I and I want to say it's the uh, uh, who did Gonzo journalism names are terrible with me. I don't know what Hunter the problem is. Thompson? Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, somebody was like, oh. I want to, and so he took Hunter S. Thompson's book and he just typed it all out word for word, so he could really see how narrative and flow and things really worked. But he kept that to himself. He didn't try to go out and sure. say, here is my take on a Hunter S. Thompson novel word for word as the original. <laughs> um, and I think that in in instances where you're trying to learn your craft, Zach, like in a, in a school environment um, or, you know, a very uh, safe environment where things don't have to go out publicly, I think it's OK to say, oh, I remember this video, uh, XYZ video, and I loved how they shot this. And so my video that I did, even though it's a different song. I shot it shot for shot from this MTV video that I watched, you know, 20 years ago mm -hmm. when I was one. <laughs> that's what Zach would say. <laughs> um, and I think that's okay in that safe environment if you're learning from it. Like, you know, there's a great, um, uh, is it Bjork uh, video where she's like, I think it's called When You're in Love. And it's kind of this real kind of slow melodic bit. And then it jumps into a jazz bit. And there's this piece where she's like walking towards the camera. And then suddenly she starts to rise up. 
in this big crane shot and she's actually on a crane. And so if you're like, oh, I want to do a shot like that. And you went through and worked out exactly how it was done and, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and, and did it backwards. It's called, um, it's called, it's oh, so quiet. Oh, so quiet. That's it. Um, you know, if you wanted to do that same shot, yeah, you could go back and break it down and figure out how they did it. And you could say, I'm going to put that in my video and do the whole music video, but with whatever your music is, Zach, uh, your song of the moment. Sure. I think that would be okay in your that learning environment. Begins. But if you try to pass that off as look at my original art, everyone, someone's going to say, no, yeah. you're just ripping off what, uh, what's his face did for Bjork. Mm-hmm. And, and the internet will do that. And the internet will do that. So you got to be super, super careful, I think, in those cases. But I think, as Rodrigo says, if there's enough of a deviation and you are doing that one bullet time effect, I think people say, yeah, bullet time effect is pretty cool. We all know where you got it from. That's what kicked off, you know, this uh, this type of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to give you a pass. But if you try to remake the entire um, fight scene in the lobby of of the <laughs> Matrix, then people are going, oh, wait a minute, man. Now you're just, you've got no creativity. And, and that's the thing is, these things that are in the in the public sphere are things that you can reference you just have to be careful mm-hmm. um and smart about how you do it it's okay to copy things it's okay to take things it's okay to change things but you just have to play it just right for people to accept it you know in the same way you can i, I would say that right now strangers on a train doesn't have that same kind of clout that a lot of other mm-hmm. hitchcock movies have but nope. Um, you, you could say like vertigo, everybody knows like the shot where you look down the stairs and the, you know, there's that, uh, um, that dolly zoom, Mm -hmm. um, or, uh, or whatever. Um, and, um, or, or let's say jaws, that shot where he like turns around and there's that, uh, zoom. You can use that not just to say, here's a jaws reference or here's this shot that we've seen where somebody's surprised, but you can, for example, if your film is a comedy, um, zoom all the way into their face and hit them with the camera when you do that. Right. (laughs) So that's like, that's you taking that shot that exists in people's consciousness and doing something else with it or doing that shot. But it's clear that the character wasn't like, and the music with the burn and, but it's clear that like the character's like biting into a sandwich, Mm -hmm. just like wasn't paying attention to what happened like that. That's a different thing that you can do with that same language. So there's a, there's having this stuff out there available to you, can sometimes feel like it's choking you because you can't do the same thing. But it's also stuff that you can use assuming you do something with it that people weren't expecting. Right. Sure. So let me uh, let me clarify the Hunter S. Thompson thing. So because I did find it, and I'm sure people have already commented in the comments before they got this far. <laughs> the quote is, you know, Hunter S. Thompson typed the great Gatsby, says Johnny mm. Depp, who played Hunter S. Thompson in two different movies. Uh, he'd look at each page of Fitz, that Fitzgerald wrote and copied it, the entire book and more than once, because he wanted to know what it felt to, to write a masterpiece. He was so hungry, yeah, innocent and yearning, that's why he did it. But he didn't, again, go out and shop it around. Sure. So just to clarify that, I knew it had something to do with Hunter S. Thompson, but I forget what, you know, who, which direction was coming from. So, um, you know, go ahead and copy, just be real careful. Sure. Homage, don't rip off. What else did you learn? Um, I learned or this week or or something that I I liked was, um, I think something important editing is getting between scenes and locations Mm, mm -hmm. smoothly. Mm -hmm. And there is a moment getting from scenes where, oh, I might get this backwards, but, um, I believe it's right after the murder. Bruno looks at his watch. 
Yes, Bruno looks at his watch, and then oh, it's nine thirty. Yeah. yeah, and then we cut to Guy looking right at his watch, and so it it gives a yep. Match, connection yep. between the scenes. That, but we transition between murder time to um, on train time, but we did it smoothly and didn't have to like take another if you, ten seconds. If you want to see. If you want to see a modern piece that does that constantly, watch Archer. Archer, they match no, I do. the last sentence of every scene to the first sentence of the next scene constantly. Yep. Either either as a call and response, like somebody says, who's ever going to do that? And the next person says, oh, I would totally do that, referring to something else. Mm-hmm. Or it's like a straight up repetition of the thing that the last person said in a different context. Or sometimes in the same context. Cool, 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 cool. So, uh, how did uh, how how did uh, Young Zach do this week, Matthew? I think he did really well. I think that uh, this particular movie could be off-putting. It took me a minute or two to get really into it, and when you get to the point where you know he's pointing things out to all three of us that we didn't necessarily pick up, or starting parts of the discussion that took us way, way off course and brought us all the way back around, I think he did really well. I'm gonna give him. The rare A this week. Ooh. Rodrigo? Oh, I, I think you did better than me. I actually kind of got uh, more into the movie that I wanted. So there were there were parts where I wasn't paying attention to the formal aspects and the themes. I was actually just watching the movie. Yep. So um, I'd say I'd say Zach definitely did a good job. I'd pass him. Oh, thank you. I will also give you a pass this week, Zach. Thank you. Thank you. Fiance did not watch? No. Make her watch Throw Mama from the Train? Uh, well, I didn't watch it, so no. That's what I'm saying. You two can sit down oh, together sit down and, and say, watch it. watch it together. Okay. All right, pass. Good for you. Yay, thank you. And I think that's it for this week. Um, make sure to head to majorspoilers.com and you'll find the podcast posting page and you can give your thoughts and comments about uh, everything we talked to you on this week's episode. While you're there, make sure to click on that amazon.com link. Uh, we might have talked about this show. I don't remember. Record too many in one night. Um, but if you do that, click on that link. Go shop at Amazon.com. Nothing will cost you any extra, but a little bit will come back to us to keep us going week after week, giving you great free content. Uh, next week, I don't, I don't know, know what, what we're, we're watching doing. yet. Let me see here. What do we got? What the list? Um, well, last last time we had. Um, uh, let's see. We had. Um, all right, so here we we've, we've got Nazis on a train. Uh, the day the Earth stood still. <laughs> oh yeah, that okay. one. Uh, Snatch. Snatch. Um, or the thing, and this would be the Carpenters, John Carpenters, the thing. Mmm. Let's go with the thing, since we seem to be referencing it every once in a while. Okay, recently. John Carpenters, the thing. Uh, next time, um, on Zach on film. There you go got michael chiklis right yeah as the thing yeah michael chiklis played the thing yeah yeah it's cool all right see you next week guys (laughs) (laughs) worst outro where it was going (laughs) 